if someone's willing to, to spend those five minutes at least thinking about so what about security i'd say i won the security mindfulness game right so it's, it's when and people as people do this often enough the first time they hear it they could disregard it the second time they hear it they could disregard it then you put a tabletop exercise there and they say huh this could really happen so the next time they go into it they'll give it a further thought so that's where mindfulness grows and then eventually you're thinking about it already and you're planning for it right so eventually you'll you'll win that battle from exabeam this is the new ciso a show about the people who lead it security teams the challenges they face and how they overcome them if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Rupa Parameshwaran, head of security at Amplitude. Born in India, Rupa was given her choice, get married or become a doctor or engineer. With the support of her family, she pursued her passions academically before taking her first role in cybersecurity as a software developer. Now she joins us to share how building both influence and credibility has allowed her to grow as a security leader. In the boardroom and beyond, security is often seen as a hindrance. So when can you use shock and awe to keep executives' attention? Why is it so important to find allies across the business? And how should a CISO build a culture of security mindfulness at their organization? Rupa, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. For the uninitiated, Rupa, please introduce yourself. Thanks, Steve. Really wonderful to be on the show today. My name is Rupa Parameshwaran, and I have a background in security and privacy for over several decades, and I don't even recall how long. Coming from a deep-rooted technical background, I see how security and privacy these days have evolved and matured over the decades and it's time for the CISOs or the heads of security at different enterprises to work with the change and evolve security processes, procedures, controls. So I'm really excited to have the conversation with you on the topic, Steve. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for being here. So you've been in security for quite a while, been in security leadership for a while. Before we get into uh, your first jobs, where are you now? Uh, what are you, you are responsible for? What breadth and, and how long have you been in that role? I am in sunny California, specifically San Francisco, and it's still sunny and cool out here. So I am true to my word. I am the head of security at a company called Amplitude, and we pride ourselves in building out a digital optimization platform or a product analytics platform to enable everyone from developers to product managers to sales teams to marketing teams to understand their customer journey or through their different form factors, be it a mobile app, be it a web application and so on and so forth. So my role as the head of security is to ensure that both our product as well as our employee and a company are secure in every, in every way. And we have and the company is built with security mindfulness and security focus in everything that we do as part of the culture, as well as part of the development process for the products we deliver. 
I've been here for uh, about for close to two years now. Okay. Now, when you got your start, well, even back when, where did you said you were an engineering student at the very beginning? What brought you to studying engineering? Not every not every security leader started off in engineering, and, and engineering for many can be quite difficult. I wouldn't have got the grades to stay through, especially. I don't remember where you went undergrad, but I know you did Virginia Tech for your PhD. What brought you to engineering? Wonderful question, Steve. A little background. Indian and in India, things are pretty deep-rooted. If you're a student with reasonably good grades, you have a choice. Either you be, if you're a woman, for instance, you have a choice. So maybe just getting any degree, getting married and taking care, it'd be, be a good home owner. I mean, like homemaker, as, as they would call it. Or if you are passionate about your studies and your parents are supportive, you become either a doctor or an engineer, right? So you have, you have these three broad options. Then there comes everything in between. I was passionate about becoming an Air Force pilot to start off with, but uh, being the only child, my dad said, well, over my dead body because I don't want to lose my only child. So there I was deciding what I wanted to do, decided after my first biology lab exercise that being a doctor is not for me or in me. So I, I started taking the traditional route, but began to enjoy what I was doing. Computer engineering was brand new in India at the time. So I went to school in India. I did my undergrad there at Bangalore University. And then while I was doing that, um, had I mean, I was, I got lucky, I would say got to work for a really passionate professor at one of the very esteemed universities called the Indian Institute of Science in India and work on an AI project for him. And I was in charge of the security components of it. And that I used as my thesis to apply to grad schools out here in the U.S. My uh, PhD advisor, uh, who the person who became my PhD advisor later from Georgia Tech, Noticed it and noticed my application, offered me a scholarship and brought me into Georgia Tech. And that's where my journey into the U.S. and journey into dependable systems, security, privacy, privacy preserving data mining and all of that started. And Georgia Tech was where I spent about five years doing my master's and Ph.D. And then there's no one turning back from there. So you originally, I find it interesting you wanted to be a pilot, and not all pilots are fighter pilots, but many of them, well, probably 10% of the pilots in any military are actually fighter pilots, and many others are flying other uh, non-combatant, you know, transport and that sort of stuff. But I think that could have been a, uh, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you today, but simply because it would, we, our paths wouldn't have crossed, but that would have been a pretty fascinating thing as well. But the, the, I'm glad that you took the engineering path. And I know many others are. The security in AI is is pretty fascinating because if I'm understanding the timeline correctly, that would have been not as main. You know, we hear ML and AI quite a bit today, but that's fairly recent. And so I can imagine that have been fairly abstract and very much not as applied as it is today. So that would have been a cutting edge kind of thing for the moment. Am I accurate in that, or or am I Absolutely. off? Absolutely, this is. Close to 2000, but not. And it was, it was brand spanking you. Amazon didn't exist. So our, my, I mean, there was three of us that did this project. Each one had a different area, like AI security and a platform to, 
to look into. And we were looking at using the zero-sum game and all the other concepts that we'd learned in undergrad to build out a, a, a book market, a ma- marketplace for books. As I said, I mean, now there's, there's Amazon and all of these marketplace locations and even Barnes & Nobles is doing online, I mean, is serving as a, as a book marketplace, but providing a marketplace for books that has AI a, taking into account for auctions and buying and so on and security being taken care of as all the, all the different parameters was, was such greenfield technology and the use of technology to build out something useful that uh, it was so enjoyable. There was no turning back after that in terms of what my career should be. Uh, that's also interesting to hear because I can think back to some of the stuff I did in undergrad and grad and think not so enjoyable. Uh, a lot of it was, though, my, my uh, master's program. I can remember being disliking a lot of my undergrad, but loving almost every minute of grad work uh, in, in security in very much the same way. Can you spend a second just to cover more so just to, to, to fill me in and, and manage some of my own ignorance? What do you think the percentage is? You know, you talked about the in the traditional family setting um, where you're from, where there's sort of the two paths of you're either going to you know go to university and become a homemaker the way you described it, or if you said if the family is supportive to be maybe a doctor or an engineer, what do you think the percentages are for that? Because that's something I didn't I didn't realize the expectation was sort of the if the family is supportive. You mentioned being very very fortunate in that regard. What do you think the numbers are? Uh, and do you think that's changing? I mean, for if there's a, a newer listener in their career, maybe listening to the show that's sort of weighing this in their own mind or trying to balance it in their own family's uh, internal discussions and hearing you as someone who has was going to be a fighter pilot, wanted to be this, ended up now being a security leader and, and uh, you know, a, a PhD. What's your thinking on that? And maybe some advice to that listener as well, if they're out there. Thanks for the question, Steve. Uh, that's a topic I'm very passionate about. The numbers are improving, is what I would say, because in, in India has traditionally been a, uh, a male-dominated society. So women were, uh, were typically thought of as someone who's given away by the time she's 17, 18, 20, to another family to take care of the the husband and his parents and, and the rest of his large family and family issues. That's changing slowly. And there's, in, in fact, things were today, if you look at the, the rural areas versus the urban areas, in the urban areas, that is, the, if you look at the bigger cities or even the upcoming cities, a lot more parents are open to the idea of their daughters growing up, becoming self-sufficient and taking care of their own career. In a lot of ways, the parents feel like they have a moral responsibility to get their daughters married off to a good home. And that is their main duty as being the parent of a, of a, of a girl. That's changing. I, to give you an example, my mom was the, the, the ninth ch- child of a large family of nine kids. And uh, she was uh, the youngest one and she had eight brothers. And she had to go through a lot of trepidations in life. Her dad was turning 60 or was close to it by the time she was two. So, and her brothers were, of course, not very 
I mean, some of them were, but a lot of them considered her as the the girl in the family, the youngest of the family. So she spent a lot of time, a lot of her life fighting to be recognized, fighting for the independence. And while her parents were reasonably supportive in letting her study, their main intention was also just to get her married off, right? So she spent a lot of her life convincing herself that if she had a child, she'd make sure that the child is supported in everything that he or she wants to do. And that's that's why I say I was lucky. I was very fortunate. And she still takes pride in everything that I do. If she was let to herself or if she had a little more support, she would have been a doctor today. Uh, but she she's she's doing really well in her own life at this point of time. And uh, she's a leader in her, her own regards. Well, and and so I you you answered the question I was leading to, and it sounds like that the situation with your own look, this is a security leadership podcast, but the people that join the show and spending time allowing the listener to learn a little bit about the human side of the guest is what I think keeps them listening to the show. Meaning, none of us are famous. We're and some of us are unknown. In fact, most everyone who's been on the show is unknown to the listener until they've been on the show. And so talking a little bit about the past and what makes the human and the decisions they made, in this case, the decisions of your own mother wanting to be seen and her own fights may have, and it sounds like it did set you up for maybe having more energy or more ability to do what you wanted to do to break free from some of the expectations that would have normally been had for you in general. And so I find that fascinating. And I, and I always like to apply it to the listener to say, you know, then what advice do you have for those maybe family members or maybe the young lady listening to this? Uh, maybe they're an undergraduate student and they're at that crossroads. Is it homemaker or is it maybe more independent professional? Do you have a, using your own experiences and your, and your mother's experiences, do you have a, a bit of advice or just an opinion or a thought to share to that person if, if they were here with us? Love the question. One thing I would say, whether it's a, it's a girl, whether it's someone deciding on what they want to do is find that one thing that you're passionate about and talk to people about it, right? As as a child, many of us want to be a teacher, or a firefighter, or anything else that looks exciting or that your friends tell you that is, is interesting. But it's important to think and reflect on what, what makes you excited and talk to your parents about it or talk to those who are close to you about your feelings, what you want and what you don't, and try and build or find that mentor or set of mentors or OGs, as, as one would call it these days, that you can trust and you can have that those conversations with and try and network and find what your key strengths are, right? Because once you are able to show your true passion for something, it's just a matter of building that support group around you, at least today, in today's world, right? The world has evolved quite a bit. The challenges that, say, my mom had when she was growing up as a child have changed in a lot of ways because the world has changed, right? Even in a place like India, the world has changed. Even if you go to the most, most rural places, as, as long as you can build that support group that's going to walk with you or that's going to be able to talk for you, you're in a good path. 
it's just important to seek out that support group and it's a slow process. And I apply that to security too, right? And security, just like a, a just like that unloved child, is it is always something that's thought about as a, as a stigma, right? Or as an afterthought or as something that, that hinders uh, someone. And so building that passion or security mindfulness or that excitement to do what's right, to do things securely is important. And how do you do that? It's a slow process. Right? It's, it's a wave that you need to, you need to go slow, build that support group. Or sometimes you get these, catch these really huge waves, right? Where a zero day vulnerability comes in or so. And then you, you catch it, uh, I mean, like catch it all at the moment and then you run with it, build up credibility. And there you've conquered half the world, right? So the same thing applies to finding your career paths too. It takes a lot of time to find what's right for you. But once you have, there's no stopping back, stopping you. So I'm, we're going to go back to that because you had a nice connection there uh, on the passion, excitement, and then the, the process. But I, I want to go back. So after university, tell us a little bit about how you got started. I know you wanted to be in development first. Walk us through a couple of those steps because you didn't, you didn't start off in leadership. And talk to us a little bit about your, your start after university and, and some of those points in your career, if you would. Where, where'd, where'd you start after university? Great question. So uh, soon after university, as I was finishing up university with my thesis, and so I was still considering whether I wanted to continue in university, follow the typical path of going into academia or uh, or else uh, be in the industry. Did a few internships along the way. But as I was noodling through this, the opportunity to work as a, a software engineer at Oracle came along, which at the outset, I mean, it seemed like, why would I want to go to a big company? And Oracle was pretty big even at that time and work as a secure, as a software engineer after everything that I've done. However, they were coming up with a brand new product in the advanced security options team, which is like one of the core products. And they were looking for their first developer and to build out the team and product. I mean, they had an idea and I was being considered as a developer number one out there and one of the most, I mean, on, on, on the product itself, for the product itself. So uh, the idea seemed interesting. I'm always up for a challenge. Spoke to the team. Um, the, the manager was, was very excited. The product manager was even more excited and in terms of the, the narrative they had in terms regarding where and how the, the whole thing fits in to the overall database and the data community. And it seemed like something I could believe in. And the fact that I could contribute to it and uh, carry forward the vision and customize it and work directly with customers and so on too, as well to get immediate feedback as we were uh, right at that at that cusp where the idea needed to be productized and so on and so forth. So just the opportunity overall seemed amazing and gave me immediate exposure, even as a software engineer with absolutely no experience. The company trusted me to to be that developer working on a product that touches everything. So as a security product, it touched everything across the database, everything from installation time to upgrade time to performance to scalability and what have you, because security is always something that slows down things, right? as, as one would say. So 
uh, just that opportunity to to work across teams, work on a cross team initiative, be everything from a technical expert, a developer to a product manager to a customer uh, engagement architect the individual just seemed fascinating and I enjoyed my time there as we shipped and released and maintained the product. From there, I wanted to do more of, uh, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to be involved in the end-to-end story of any product or any feature rather than just develop one small portion and, uh, and go from there. I realized that just writing code wasn't something that keeps me excited. It's everything around it. It's the it's a product. It's the it's a communication. Everything that comes before and after that's interesting and exciting. So I spent a few more years building out products, being security products in companies, and then I had an opportunity to look at things uh, from a different angle in terms of how do I make sure that all products are built security rather than building security products to sell to that people would have to use. And why don't I look at things the other way? And as I was coming out of having kids, seemed like a nice segue to move into that area as Microsoft gave me some of that opportunity itself. And Pinterest came my way with an opportunity to work on some of the GDPR initiatives for privacy, compliance, and so on. And that, again, seems to touch and know because my PhD thesis was all about privacy preserving data mining. So that opportunity just seemed like the perfect next step. And I took it on, I had to play the role of everything from an architect to a program manager to a project manager, it gave me the interaction, the leadership opportunities to work closely with uh, different business units, business leaders, partner with legal and so on and so forth. And started loving that aspect of it too. So it was a journey from there. It just felt like that's my next calling in terms of evolving, changing the mindset, the mentality of people and trying to see how I could shift security more left and build that security mindfulness and security culture in the entire company and then help everyone to to think about security, at least give it a thought as they're moving forward, building that next thing in there. So that was my turning point. And then I continued to grow along that path. And here I am at an amplitude. So it's kind of interesting because I'm shocked that a G, of all the things you've done, that a GDPR project was the thing that you're like, ah, yeah, this is it. This is my, as you said, your words, the turning point. And I think GDPR is a fine thing and understanding it is very important, obviously, but it can be a little maddening as well. Some of the wording that's used and some of the the taking it from the language that they use into applying it to your ecosystem is a difficult thing. And so it takes it takes some great, I would say, probably patience <laughs> uh, to make sure that that works. But I'm fascinated by that. But I'm also taken back to when you your Oracle days, if I remember correctly. I was out there around 99 or 2000, just on some visits. And I can remember each of those buildings had a different, how much money they spent on, there's a different cafeteria at the base of each of those buildings at headquarters. And they had world renowned chefs from all over making different themes. Was that the case then still? Or was that, 
a silly question for you, but I can remember how the excitement around Oracle at the time and the recruiting and the benefits and the sort of California culture development excitement and all the rest was, I mean, that, that had to have been an exciting time. It was an exciting time. <laughs> But I mean, I didn't have, I mean, I, I, this was more around 2006. They weren't the world-renowned chefs, or maybe I didn't know. I wasn't aware. Maybe I should go and check. But there were, of course, the, the five, six different cafeterias to choose from and different cuisines. And that was all the excitement uh, before Google introduced the free lunches. But <laughs> yes, there was a lot of that in terms of... Uh, selling all the benefits and the value or ads and all the good, uh, all the other perks that come with uh, joining a company. Yeah, no, I can, I just remember those days. Yeah, it was around maybe it's 99 or 2000, just visiting out there. I, it, it was um, interviewing and some other stuff and uh, was representing uh, the school I was attending at the time. And I can remember, and maybe Larry got rid of the chefs by the time 2006 rolled around. I don't know, but I remember they made a big deal about that and the way they would pitch, but exciting times nonetheless. And I, I'm also fascinated though, just again, back to the GDPR thing. I mean, what was, if you can talk about, you called out the fact that it was a leadership opportunity, but outside of what GDPR is, what do you think you learned as an individual the most out of having to run that project? Like if you were to finish the sentence of out of that project, I got better at what? Out of that project, I got better at building support groups and allies and influence security development without having to directly manage people. And that's where I think the, the evolution of security uh, or the security program in companies is, right? In terms of you cannot just scale out a security team and build a a 50-people team in a 200-people company, regardless of how important or critical your product is. So it's important to make sure that you're able to spread that security mindfulness across the company. How do you do that? That influence, a need for influence, getting security done through influence is a key message that I learned. Uh, as long as you know how to translate all the legalese and everything uh, and, and, and the regulations into 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 the technical stuff and you have the technical, the strategic wherewithal with you. You're assured sixty percent success as a CISO, maybe, in that world of CISO success. But if you can build security relationships through just influence and get security done through influence and be that salesperson, be able to build those allies, I think that's how you get the security mindfulness and security relationship much stronger within a company. You Okay, so a couple of things. Great guests. Like I do all, for anyone who listens to this, this is all kind of on the fly. I mean, I have a general outline, but as, as a guest makes a strong point, I make bullet points. I've got Microsoft Word in front of me right now, and I make bullet points on, on strong points I want to go back and reinforce for the benefit of the, of the listener. And the, the most important thing, I was going to have you repeat this. I wrote down influence before you said influence, and then you got there natively. That is the single most important thing I can tell both an established security leader and an aspiring security leader. You have to learn influence. If I was looking to promote someone in my prior organizations or even talking about them uh, about it today, 
and they say, I want a big fancy title. I want more responsibility. I want to build a team. I measure how much influence they have today. Or we talk a lot about you have to be able to influence before you can earn the title. And that's the single greatest measure of success, influence, and then by, by extension, getting things done via that influence. And so you, you hit it directly on the head. Because once you can exhibit that, you can put handles on that and I can put you in a larger position. You've sort of figured that out. It's not the title at all. Um, it's, it's influence. And I, I, I just want to highlight that for the listener, for those that if, if you, maybe you have it, but maybe your, your direct reports do not. Maybe you've got a manager or director who's still needs, that's, that would be the, where I'd spend the most time. Are they good at influence? Now, I got a question for you. You've mentioned several times this concept and you've kind of defined it, but maybe not directly, or at least maybe not to me. I want to put a clear definition around security mindfulness. You've mentioned it several times. So it's, I know it's important to you. Can you give us a definition of what that is specifically? I mean, you had it earlier with building support allies without having to manage people. But what exactly is, can you define security mindfulness for us and explain that a bit? Thanks for asking. Security mindfulness is where security is at least thought of. You could decide not to do security, but then it's a conscious decision that, yeah, I thought about it. I asked someone because I didn't know what the what the issues were. I listened to the issues and I decided not to do it. Right. So if someone's willing to, to spend those five minutes, at least thinking about, so what about security? I'd say I won the security mindfulness game. Right. So it's, it's not, when, and people, as people do this often enough, the first time they hear it, they could disregard it. The second time they hear it, they could disregard it. Then you put a tabletop exercise there and they say, huh, this could really happen. So the next time they go into it, they'll give it a further thought. So that's where mindfulness grows. And then eventually you're thinking about it already and you're planning for it, right? So eventually you'll, you'll win that battle. And could an example be just maybe there's meetings going on where you're not there and someone takes the time to pull you in and invite? Is that maybe a tactical example of that? Absolutely. That's, that's one tactical example. A, having someone else speak for you is the other one, right? So you've built out a niche group of security champions, maybe even just three. And those three people are in meetings where you are not or your team is not. And uh, they listen to an idea and they say, hey, but, and they're able to speak to security. They speak about it, about some, uh, have a security question in there and convince that person that maybe a conversation with the security team is worthwhile. That I think is success. Maybe not a direct example, but one of the other things, speaking about influence, if I was on a, a large call or when I'm on a large call with other leaders and you're trying to get something approved where it's not a guarantee, I always thought I, I always had success if I had one other person speak up. If I was trying to present something and say, hey, we really need to do this or this is the best way or I need this funding because whatever it is. If I had one person, because a lot of times we've all been on calls where we make a statement and there's dead air. And then dead air means typically no decision or no support. But if you have one voice that says, yes, I agree, that's I think, you know, Steve's right, or I think that's a, a, a good thing for us 
99 times out of 100, it happens. It hooks up. You need one voice. And so I think that gets back into maybe the up level of your of your definition, which is, you know, what are your what's your support structure? Who are your allies? And then the, you know, the security mindfulness is sort of a <laughs> a spirit that should live in the minds of more than just the security team, but it's almost cultural in nature. But it needs fed as the spirit needs fed as well. So maybe spend a second if you would. So this, if you're going to call security mindfulness the spirit of an organization related to security, what do you do? What today does Rupa do or what is what have you learned to do to feed that spirit? I mean, I know there's high level things, but can you give some examples? You mentioned tabletops and some other things, but what are ways that get you to feed that better? Something that the listener could then maybe adopt and use or think about. It, and I think, thanks for that. I think you, you nailed it when you said building allies. It's about the security leader. It's important to find the, the, the people who would back you and, and propagate the security mindfulness across their team, whether it's downward or laterally, or like you mentioned, speak to the need for security in a broader strategic meeting. And I've seen the biggest success there, whether it's interacting with the leadership team on the need for resources for security, whether it's education, whether it's implementing, changing a policy, building out a security feature in a product, that the buy-in is not easy if security is standing like an island. One thing I've learned is it's important to, to have those conversations, build those allies early, uh, build those wins. And one thing I mentioned in, t- in terms of uh, catching the wave when you see it is um, like, for instance, when there was the Log4j or the SolarWinds uh, incident, it's, it's a double-edged sword. The security team is often strapped and doesn't have resources, but that's one chance or that's a big opportunity to win that credibility across all teams, showing that ownership, leadership, the uh, showing that ability to drive the incident response through to completion smoothly and following up with, hey, this is what we did. Here are the here are the things we that, that could have gone wrong that didn't, and showcasing those and putting together a strategy. And then being able to teach people how to handle these things on their own without the security team goes a long way in terms of building out those allies, building out the the awareness, spreading the awareness and the mindfulness in the company. You spent some time with me talking about in an earlier conversation about the concept of credibility. And you even made uh, a statement around the currency of credibility. The example you were giving early on is sort of your background. You're saying you're sort of keeping away from code. and But sometimes you still will show it to show you can still sort of do this and and show others that you you know you you've retained sort of these these skill sets moving more toward the currency of credibility what what did you mean what is your definition of the credibility as currency and 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 as you you change your role how do you present that how do you manage that obviously your story everyone's story is a little bit different and your 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 past will paint sort of your future but talk to us a little bit about the currency of credibility and and how does that affect your job today if you would so uh, credibility to me is more about building that trust 
in among the people that you you have to work with our credibility when it comes to working with an engineering team is showing that you understand that issue uh, the 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 problems that, that they're facing the challenges that they're facing and the product that they're building and that they're proud of building right so understanding the product whenever you're a security leader is key to being a good leader i think this is this holds true for any leader not just a security leader but understanding the product understanding the nuances is is important and showing that you you're aware of the functionality of the uh, of the importance of of the features the product is very important too and then going with that knowing the the stack this is for the engineering thing is is important as well and the deliverables and holding true and and seeing what's important within a company if it's if the company is deadline driven then making sure that whatever deadlines are provided are met is one working with the uh with the logistics of uh, of of the company's tracking of uh of successes and failures whether the company uses an OKR system or whether they have different vision statements or goals and so on working within the confines of of those in terms of demonstrating success failures are important using data to to drive decisions along with the, the the building influence and allies is uh, one thing i haven't mentioned so far is uh, backing your facts with data and that is key right because you can have your own perceptions you could you could have your own intuitions but if you have data that th- that reflects the true state of the company and the state of security it's hard to refute oh 100% in in after a while people don't even ask for the data anymore if you hit them with that a couple of times like and just make it as part of you know hey i'm i'm just not making this up this isn't just because i feel like it's a best practice if you have real information ideally from internal internal examples of whether it's code or 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 flaws in objects or you know issues related to entities on the network or credentials or whatever that might be you have actual internal information short of that environmental maybe outside of your walls but absolutely the funny thing i found is if you back that stuff up over time it'll go from people doubting you to trusting you trusting you to not necessarily calling you for the data but then over time they'll find their own issue and ask you cuz you're in security and often see a lot of things asking you to help them with their own data well said and then it becomes a problem of how do you prioritize and what do you prioritize right Right, right. Uh, and I think that's one of the highest levels, though, of what a security team, especially those in an analytic group, can become. Not just a response, not just a threat, not just an attack, but they can often be an answer team. They can also be a team that helps with retrospective analysis, a team that helps with planning for the future, sort of an answer, sort of a think tank kind of that should be an evolutionary step. But you're not going to get any of that given to you. It's got to be earned and it takes years often. Rupa, I want to spend a second on, you and I had a great chat about presenting to executive leadership and your statement to me, which I misunderstood when you first said it, was spend a moment on the English language and specifically on 
tone and making sure you're sort of putting things together the right way. Spend a second on that. You had a lot to share about this. Uh, in fact, I've got a list of, of points, but let's see how many of them you remember, because I think this is an excellent topic. If you're going to spend a moment on the, the specific use of language related to board and executive discussions, what's, give us your take on that. What advice do you have? Good question. I think I know what you're, what you're referring to in terms of the tone, but let me start by uh, saying it's even b- as you go into presenting to the leadership and to the board, it's important to find the allies and to understand what the board or, the, uh, or your audience's appetite is for security. Having the one-on-one conversations, I think you mentioned that uh, earlier to, uh, in our conversation today as well in terms of building that, that one-on-one relationship and finding out what picks one's interest and having people speak for you in a meeting is important and to support you is important. Along with that, it's important for the board or the team to know that security is an enabler. And that's where the credibility and, and the influence and security as something that uh, as the leader that will help the business succeed, be successful and help the company and its customers have a happy journey is a message that you want to convey to the board too. Even if, if you if you are going to call out things that are not pretty or you're asking for resources or uh, you need the board to bless you on a decision, uh, it's important to go to the board or to the leadership team and let them know that you're here to help. And the security team has, here are the things that we're working on. Here are the things, even if there are challenges, how and what's been done so far, what else needs to be done to get the company to the level they need to be. And all of these need to be in terms or in language that your audience understands. You cannot have security terms or things like a course or uh, a CSRF or an MFA fatigue in there. And yes, they may have heard of these things. How much do they know or what do they know how it can impact the product that's being built or the employees? Maybe, maybe not. So it's important to speak in terms that your audience understands and then deliver the message in a way that's pleasant. You told me your statement was that your mantra, you had a mantra for this, which I've not seen this done in a boardroom, but maybe with executive leadership, but you said it was sort of a shock and awe thing where you to get their attention, to calm them down and then sort of bring it up again. But you had some sort of rules around that. Talk to us about that. Thank you for reminding me about that. Shock and awe, of course. So I also call it the Tom and Jerry game. If you if you've seen Tom and Jerry as a kid, some of you may, some of you may have not. If you haven't, I completely recommend it. That was my go-to cartoon growing up. And the way Jerry always succeeds in teaching Tom a lesson or like running away from Tom is, is by the shock and awe, right? Yes, you need to highlight something critical. However, you always back it up very quickly. Give them a moment to take that in and very, very quickly back it up by what can be done to address it. That's where you pick their interest. You have one message you want to deliver. 
And then you tell them how that, that, that problem or that issue can be solved. Even if you take a tabletop incident or, or, or a real incident for a moment, or you're painting a picture, you create that, that surprise element in terms of what if something like this happens. And there has to be just one message because if there are two or three, you're just watering it down already. One message, take it up, build up the tempo and immediately provide a solution because you don't want to scare them. You just want to surprise them and say, hey, we have you covered. Well, and so that leads me to the other thing I asked, uh, you know, is there ever a time that this didn't work well? And I thought that that was kind of funny. So this sort of shock and awe works. But you said there was one example where this doesn't work, or at least for you, it caused problems. Uh, do you remember that? Actually, I do not. You may have rejogged my memory. Well, you, you mentioned that, that the sort of the anti-truth to this was being too enthusiastic. So if you're too like wound up about this, they, they almost don't want you that excited, which is part of sort of reading the room. And, and there's a tone that's typically there. And, um, it, you know, it can be a little more formal or and if you're in there too excited they may have questions about you is do you fit in that room it is sort of the, what i've discovered or, or learned some sometimes the hard way in my own past any additional thoughts on that yes uh, now that you mention it i believe that's probably why i didn't bring it up up front during our conversation the shock and awe is once you've understood your audience if the audience if you, and, and here's where the subtleties come in right uh, your audience may be team of people who are very security savvy and who want to know some of the details as opposed to to be in a, I mean, be a part of a fiction move, right? They're probably happier just to get the data and the facts and be told uh, what's going on and be happy with the metrics. You don't want to create a movie out of it. You don't want to scare someone away if they do not have an appetite or if there's someone with a strong mindset already and a highly and a very opinionated person, then one thing you may want to do is understand what clicks and what doesn't rather than use your tried and tested method. So shock and knock could be a great idea for the most part. However, learning your audience, I would say, is the first step and understanding whether that shock and awe treatment works is important before you you go full speed on it. Yeah. And I think that sometimes one-on-one -on -one meetings ahead of time, that's been a, a theme through the show from several guests is, you know, get one-on-one -on -one to kind of, it, before you've ever, if it's your first time in the room, uh, a way to, to approach that is meet with the individuals as many as you can. You might not get their time, but if you can, to kind of figure out what protocol is like. And, and, and also then what you mentioned, you know, keep, keep the conversation pretty tight. Even if you're given a long window of time, know that that may get cut back. Uh, you know, try to keep each topic. Uh, one of the things you told me was less than five minutes, right? If you can, you know, and, and just, just work on that room and also let them know that, that you've thought through it was, you know, that, that this is something that, that you have these things sort of covered and, to give them a feeling of confidence, I think is the big thing. I have one more question. It's the question we ask all of our guests to conclude the show. Our time has flown by today, which is a sign of a great show, uh, at least in, by my measure. But one final question, pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO. Rupa, what does being a new CISO mean to you? 
a new uh, CISO is one that's con- continuously evolving. There's a lot of acronyms out there in the security community today, but shifting left are evolving continuously to keep the wheels of security turning is what the new CISO's biggest responsibility is. You wear several t- hats. However, security is a journey. You keep evolving with the trends, with the markets, with the company that you work in. So the new CISO's role is not something that can be taught or learned in any school. It's something where you evolve and grow with the business and with the trends that that are happening around you. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Steve. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Yeah, it was excellent. I appreciate you being here. Thanks again. Thank you. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.